everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with ESPN's Ramona Shelburne to talk about her remarkable five-part 30 for 30 podcast series called The Sterling Affairs. Stay with us. Ramona emailed me the files on this podcast series a few days ago, so I've had a chance to get ahead of it. I finally finished the final part about a half an hour before she and I are sitting down here. And Ramona, I I think this is the best compliment I can give you. I've listened to all five parts. And if you told me, Hey, I've got, I've got five more parts to the Sterling affairs (laughs) that I'm going to email you tonight. I would absolutely dive into them on my drive home from Bristol. I'd listen to another five episodes of it. Uh, the, the podcast is remarkable. You've been working on it. In, in some ways, you've been working on this for years. Um, but t- tell me this, Ramona. The idea to tell this story the way you have in a podcast format, to make it five parts, which, and even in the beginning, I wondered, well, I feel like I know this story pretty well. I, I, I covered it. Um, no one covered it quite like you did, but but I covered it and was around for all of it. I don't know if this would, I don't know if there's five parts in this for me that are going to keep me riveted. And it was riveting. It was absolutely <laughs> riveting. So I, I think I was always drawn to the soap opera, right? The, the Donald and Shelley marriage and the very strange love triangle be, with V. Stiviano, right? Like people remember V. Stiviano with the, with the visor and stuff on roller skates, <laughs> right? Like, yep. and, and, you know, I knew behind the scenes, how that played into everything, like how we even got here. Um, and that's always what hooked me into the story. And then as I'm reporting on this, I realize, wait, the NBA tried to kick him out 30 years ago and it didn't take, right? Like they voted him out, but he kind of got out of it because the league still kind of needed him. And they just sent Alan Rothenberg in and, you know, to babysit and to make everything look good. And he just kind of moved the team to Los Angeles despite the league opposing it. And, And they fined him a little bit and he just did it anyway. I mean, the league has been trying to get rid of Donald Sterling for 30 years. So why did it take this? And you look at the history of it and you get into this, you know, and the more I, the more I dug into this, there was one thing that jumped out at me. And I think it was really important that I don't know if you would, uh, you can get unless you live in Los Angeles and you have seen both teams up close for most of your, my adult life, right? Which I have, right? I grew up with both teams. Um, but Magic Johnson seemed to be a very strange and personal trigger for Donald Sterling. Magic Johnson is the person in the Instagram post that V. Stiviano has where Donald freaks out. Donald says, I don't bring, I, I don't care who you associate with, but don't put them in your Instagram post. And it's, it's the picture with magic that sets him off. Right. And then later on, when he does his interview with Anderson Cooper, he's right. doing okay. I wouldn't say he's doing good. Then he went off the but, rails on magic. Right. And then he goes off the rails on magic. Yep. And I'm like, what is it about magic? That's such a trigger for him. That, that seems really personal. And I started asking around in LA and I go, Oh, it's because Donald and Jerry Buss are very much the same profile, right? They're like virtually the same age. 
And Jerry Buss has this very real relationship with Magic Johnson as like sort of a, a son to him, right? Um, he has real success, whereas Donald has been pretty much searching his entire adult life for real respect and validation and not the kind that you just buy and force people into going to your silly parties and hiring fake paparazzi for. Well, w- one of the things you explored in this Ramona, that I was very well aware of, I think the two people, maybe the two most prominent people in Donald Sterling's adult life that he wanted to be. Now, Jerry Buss, I mm-hmm. knew that, right? He wanted, yeah. he would go to the Laker, and you have this the stories of him going uh, to the Forum Club and seeing the parties and the women and seeing the women yeah. attracted to uh, Dr. Buss and thinking, you know, in his mind, hey, if I have a team in L.A., yeah, that's a way for me to have beautiful women want to be around me. But the other name, and it makes perfect sense uh, in lots of ways, mm-hmm. was Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, there's literally a story that Donald Sterling was very proud of that calls him the West Coast Trump. I mean, that is who he aspired to be. And I think from a character standpoint... It was fascinating the more I learned, right? So so Donald Sterling and Jerry Buss are both self-made men, right? They both come from poverty. Jerry Buss is from Wyoming, and he works as, you know, there's all these stories of him working on the railroad and teaching himself chemistry and then coming out to USC and building a career um, first as a, as a chemist and then in real estate. Donald Sterling actually has a very similar backstory. He is a poor Jewish kid growing up in Boyle Heights, which is East L.A., and puts him, he's really smart, puts himself through law school, becomes a, a titan in LA real estate. They start kind of going in the same circles, Jerry Buss and Donald Sterling. And they are, um, they get to this place where you have a lot of money and it's about what are you going to do with it, right? Um, so Donald Sterling at, at one point had, before anybody knew, knew him, he had changed his last name from Tokowitz, which was the very obvious Jewish name, to Donald Sterling and started to talk to people around town about wanting to run for political office. Um, I didn't put all that in the podcast, but, but we had a number of people who told me that he was, you know, he had, he had considered that, um, at, at one point in his career. And was, you know, going to the forum club and, and seeing kind of what Jerry Buss had. And I don't know if people know that whole story of Donald actually loaning Jerry Buss the last $3 million he needed to buy the Lakers from Jack Kent Cook. Um, but those first couple of years in the, in the 80s, I mean, the Lakers were everything. It was like showtime. They were winning. The forum club was like Studio 54 on the West Coast. And for a guy like Sterling, who clearly wanted not just to be rich, but to be famous, to be a celebrity, which is what a lot of people in LA want. Let's be real. Okay. People come to town for a lot of reasons, but most of them involve fame and fortune. Um, Sterling was just drawn by that and decides I'll buy a team. And, and, you know, Jerry Buss is the one who vouches for him with the league. Um, there's a lot of really good backstories that we didn't get to go, we didn't get to cover because if you wanted those other five episodes, this is what that would be about. <laughs> but, um, you know, those fun stories of how he actually, he buys the team from a guy named Irv Levin who had done a, a, a strange swap with the Celtics where like he, Sterling actually is in a position where because he takes on Irv Levin's debts, he doesn't feel like paying any of those debts. And there's like all these old Boston Celtics players who he doesn't pay. Like he owes money and pension to John Havlicek and <laughs> Havlicek used to get paid by Levin. But when Donald Sterling takes on the team, he just stops paying him. 
Well, that was that was always the case with Clipper coaches. You'd get yeah. fired. Oh, yeah. Assistant coaches would get fired. Head coaches would get fired. And Donald was always willing to, and you get into this, um, yeah. I'll, I'll wear you out in court. Like, yeah. like you, and you have these coaches who were living paycheck to paycheck and assistants who were making, you know, yep. at different times, 40 or 50 or 60,000 a year, where in the yeah. end they had to settle for 30 cents or 40 cents on the dollar off of guaranteed contracts and the NBA, they allowed that to go on and, and they were complicit in what Donald did with contracts and coaches. And every mm-hmm. once in a while you'd hear in the later years of, at least since I was covering the league, when when so, when this would be going on and the coaches association would sort of get together and say, yep. hey, how about no, no one go for the Clippers job? Like nobody, just don't go for the job. Well, of course people are going to go for the job. There's one of 30 and it, it didn't work. So the one of the guys I talked to in the podcast who – um, I talked to you off the air, but he, he didn't want to do the podcast at that. And I, and I don't blame him was Bill Fitch. Okay. Um, and Bill Fitch was a legendary coach, you know, in, in the college ranks and, um, one of those coaches who Donald fired and didn't pay and, and just had to settle. And the guy that if there's a sort of, there's a famous quote, um, from Phil Jackson about Donald Sterling, where he said, you know, I'm one of those guys from the sixties who believes in karma. And there, he was talking about the Clipper curse and that's who, Phil is referencing because he played for Bill Fitch at, at North Dakota. He was real close with him. And people in the coaching profession knew this about Sterling and resented him for it, right? Like the coaches tried to stick up for other coaches. Um, and there was this sense that like, you know, if you treat people this badly, it's just going to continue to be a problem, right? And I, the, one of my early experiences as a reporter was covering what happened with Mike Dunleavy. Do you remember that one? Yeah. He, Dunleavy gets ousted. Um, but Dunleavy kind of was, was wise to this. And he was one of the guys who really tried to turn around the Clippers. I think he, they gave him a lot of power and he helped really change the franchise. And then Neil Olshay replaces him. And then Neil actually got him a meeting with LeBron James back in 2010. That was incredible for the Clippers. They actually put a press release out about getting a meeting with LeBron. Yeah. Because for, it was for them so at the time, it was. To be able to yeah. be at the table with him was credibility, and that that was an yeah. era of, you know, Blake was there, and then they mm-hmm. you know, Neil Olshay made the Chris Paul trade, and he drafted Eric Bledsoe, and uh, you know he and Vinny Del Negro's coach went to the playoffs, and yeah. and then Neil left again. I think Donald was paying never him gave probably, him a contract, right? He was paying him maybe two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, which yeah. is. Even sub, you know, seven or eight years ago was still way below market value. Wait, and yeah. Paul Allen offered, you know, I think probably quadrupled that in Portland and, and he left and he, you know, if it, it, it was like how it would be with players, free agents. When you, yeah. you built a reputation, you used that platform with the Clippers to make yourself appealing somewhere else in the league and he got out of there. So I think what was, there were two things that you, you look at when the way the Clippers would do business is that, Anybody really good in this industry is not going to work like that for too long. Like they're not going to work without a contract or without stability or well below market value when they can get so much more elsewhere. And I remember, you know, I covered those years with Neil and Mike Dunleavy and Mike, Mike actually went to court with Donald and he won because Mike was wealthy enough independently to be able to say, no, you know what? Actually, I can starve just as long as you can, bud. Right? right, like we can, we can, we can have the lawyers duke it out for years, and like I don't need the paycheck right away, so we can, we can be in court. And he actually, he did it long enough, and he was successful, and he got a pretty big settlement out of it. He pretty get paid everything, and then some. 
Um, Neil had no choice but to leave. He, he was too good, and Sterling didn't want to pay him. And it got to that's and that was kind of the story of that era of like like you said, free agents used to do that. Now the the top front office guys were doing that. But the irony of the 2014 season, where the tapes where the tapes come out and they blow up, is that Donald had finally started getting out of the way. He had finally started letting his front office and Doc Rivers and Andy Roser at that time had started to just minimize Donald. He, you know, they, they figured out how to manage him. And then one of the, I'm sure you, you covered this at the time when Doc took the job, he knew exactly what he was getting into. He had language put into his contract mm-hmm. to make sure that if he ever got fired, Sterling wouldn't be able to do that and that he had personnel power. Yeah. And, and one of the first, to me, one of the wildest stories I've reported on was, and it was that era. It was at that time. I, mm-hmm. I think it was Doc's first. It was Doc's first. Uh, he had yeah. left Boston and free agency had come and they had done a sign and trade with, um, see, Milwaukee, Phoenix yeah. yep. and, uh, the Clippers and Bledsoe goes to the Suns and, and JJ Reddick, who people kind of forget he was in Milwaukee for mm-hmm. a few months after Orlando traded him. They do a sign and trade. They agree to a five year deal. Uh, or four-year deal, excuse me, with uh, J.J. Redick. And there's the moratorium period. And all of a sudden, Donald starts to change his mind about signing J.J. Redick. And the reason why? He didn't yep. want to pay that much money to a white player. And yep. the, the thinking would go for a racist, an avowed racist, like Donald Sterling was, well, you'd think he'd just want a team of white players, but his... Narrow mind thought, well, really only African American players can play this game. I, I don't want a white player, um, cause they're not as good in basketball. Like he had all these racial stereotypes and anybody who's ever worked in that front office, if you wanted to try to draft an international player or sell them on Eric Piakowski in the first round, that was a tough sell with Donald Sterling because of his racial views. Like in you get into this and this was some of the most compelling uh, material in there, and Blake Griffin talked about it, about the players, you know, as he would parade through the locker room and physically manhandle the players, touch their bodies, show mm-hmm. them off to his friends and women who'd come roll in the locker room with him as though these were show horses or something worse than that, that that he just, he'd grab their muscles and feel their muscles. It was dehumanizing. It and really that's the prism with which Donald Sterling saw basketball. And so here's this three-way trade with three teams. You've got like, you know, these teams have all committed to this deal. The market's dried up. J.J. Redick has a a contract, an agreement, and there was a window of about 48 to maybe a good 48 hours where there was – Doc was getting – Doc was seriously contemplating quitting and walking away. And I think he told – he told Donald Sterling – I am quitting if you bail on this trade. And I remember the Donald was out somewhere for like July 4th on the somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And they said, we've got to essentially wait for Donald to like for him to come out of his stupor at two or three in the afternoon every day to be able to talk to him, to try to make mm-hmm. sure, you know, we can put this deal back together. And it got put back together. I ended up reporting on it later, not, um, it got done and it didn't fall apart. And right when I was about to report, hey, this thing's in big trouble, 
the deal got done and Donald came back. But that was, oh yeah, Doc might have been out of there in the first month of the job. Yeah, I mean, Woj, there I have so many stories from former coaches and executives with the Clippers of how the, the lengths they had to go to to get a hold of Donald, like on the weekend or whenever they needed to, do, to really do business, right? So I'm going to withhold this person's name, but I've heard it from two or three people. The first version of it was the funniest, okay? Um, they said, you know, they knew something was going on on the weekend, You'd have to, Donald has two houses. One's in Beverly Hills, right? That's, a, that's in town. And the other is the beach house in Malibu. And, um, this person would drive out to Malibu, no, like say it's a weekend and you'd knock on the front door and nobody would answer. You know, nobody, nobody would, he's not available, right? But if you went out back, um, along the beach, you know, it's right on the beach there. So you could just, it's a public beach. You could just walk along there. Um, you'd often find Donald just sunbathing. You'd just be sitting in his cabana chairs, right? And the person who first told me the story said, I said, how often did you have to do this? And the guy says, all the time. And I go, and, uh, and I laughed and, and he says, and you were lucky if he was wearing clothes. Mm. <laughs> well, th- there's, some- I mean, yeah. this is what it was like working for the Clippers for all of those years with Donald as the owner. And I think the big takeaway from all these eccentric, weird Donald stories is simply that the man had a tremendous amount of power in Los Angeles. He was the largest residential landlord in LA. He is a billionaire many times over and controlled real estate in the city, demographics in this city. He's the reason there's rent control in lots of parts of this city because of the way his company operated. Um, he had control over a franchise. He had control over a lot of really good players' careers, coaches' careers. And he was really good at knowing how to hold on to that power, how to press that leverage. But over time, the world changed. And he didn't see all the ways that it was changing. He didn't understand technology the way we do now. He didn't understand. You know, he knew Vistaviano was recording him on the cell phone, but he didn't understand what that really meant. Like, he didn't see the damage of that. He doesn't... He didn't have a sense of what TMZ was all about. He, he read the LA Times every day. He didn't, he didn't really understand the whole internet and the way things would go that way. And um, I think that was a big reason why this tape and this scandal is the one that brought him down because he's the deal guy who always got the best deal because he knew every building that was for sale and the three buildings down the street that were he's already owned and bought them. He knew your financial situation. In this case, he did not know the arena he was playing in. You talk about the league in the 80s trying to take the Clippers away from Mm -hmm. Donald Sterling. They fought him on the move from San Diego to L.A. And and part of what opened the door for him to be able to go to L.A. was Al Davis moving the Raiders. And that, uh, that helped to facilitate Donald just up and doing it. And the league didn't try very hard after that, Ramon. I mean, they're mm-hmm. from the housing discrimination suits, which should have, which you would imagine would have been grounds. And you have uh, the reporting you do in this on that and the audio tapes um, that people can hear from depositions and, and, and the reporting from those depositions, which not sure you could tell me were those new audio tapes or was that stuff that's been, the depositions. I know the reporting on 
So the housing lawsuits has been public. Uh, those are you know cases that have been the times and, and been written about mm-hmm. uh, in the past. But, but but I think the power of the audio tapes of listening then Oof. that and I wrote this at the time when these tapes came out and Sterling, yeah. like the league deserved this to happen to them because they just. David Stern and the other owners, they were just waiting for Donald to die. He had been sick a couple times. They just thought Donald was naturally going to go away. And for all the years that the NBA allowed, all the things that we've been talking about here so far and are in this five-part pod series, the NBA got what it deserved as a league to be humiliated. Um, Not the the people who got hurt and who were publicly humiliated in this, his players, they didn't deserve this. They didn't. Mm-mm. But as a whole, the NBA did get what they deserved because they never dealt with Donald Sterling in a manner in which they should have. And that goes to the owners. That's not just the league offices. You, like, the, the commissioner works for the owners. And, and, and as you point out in here, there are enough owners with enough skeletons in their closet, um, who didn't want to set the precedent. Because if they had Donald Sterling on this, they had other guys and other things, and and they didn't want um, to open that door for themselves, and that allowed yeah. Sterling to exist in the league, and and have all this happen. Um, uh, I think there's also know, in a very like a, public um, and humiliating way. A weird uncle quality to to the Sterling thing that you and I know the league, which is that there's there you know there's 30 teams, and people would like all of the, like you know just think of it like a neighborhood, right? So you you know you each have your your house and. There, you know, you'd like everybody to keep up their lawn and look, you know, have a certain standard to what their house looks like because it, it helps the value of everybody. But you don't want, you don't want everybody to have a mansion. You don't want everybody to have a nicer house than you. And if there's like one house on the street that like probably should be really good, like the Clippers are in Los Angeles, which is just prime real estate. And as you've seen now that they're in the hands of a capable owner, they, they, they're now a free agent destination and they have real management. They have real, real front office. They have real organization now. Like they're a sleeping giant. And I think that there there was this quality amongst the rest of the team, the teams in the league, of like, yeah, we should we should do something about Sterling. It's an embarrassment, but you know what? Let's let let's let the like let's let the Clippers be a sleeping giant. Let's let them mm-hmm. be that that weird uncle, you know, that weird house that's painted pink and kind of, you know, nobody really wants to live next to that neighbor. Let, let's let them stay there because then now they're not a threat. R- Ramona, you covered the Sterling years. You covered the NBA in LA. You covered as a local reporter earlier in your career, and then at ESPN, you covered this entire episode uh, throughout. But in doing the research, the reporting for the podcast series, what surprised you? What didn't you know as much about as you thought maybe you did going into it? Because no one knew the story better than you. Um, I would say, and this is maybe there's, this is like the chick, okay, in me, okay, so this is like the, you know, I like the juicy love triangle, but, um, there was this one part, and I, I worked with this producer, her name is Julia, Julia Lowry Henderson, she did this great series on Bikram Yoga before, and, um, I thought I knew everything. I knew there had been previous mistresses. I, you know, I'd read the Drudge Report. I read Peter Keating's story in the ASPN, the magazine. I read, I read some of those other depositions. But it wasn't until Julia pulled out the actual legal research and we started going through one of the old cases involving a mistress named Alexandra Castro. And this deposition that I'm sure you've probably felt really bad for me that I had to voice over, <laughs> right? 
<laughs> you'll, I'll, I'll just say this. You'll know it when you get to it. And, oh, uh, you'll definitely know it. Part, it was in part three, right? Yeah. You will know it when you get to it. Yep. I mean, we, we, we really tried hard to get the audio of that. And there's a really, there's a fun backstory about where that audio might be. Um, the lawyer involved says it was, it was stolen and it was the only thing stolen out of his office. <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, we didn't have the audio of it, but we do have the written deposition and I had to voice it. And it's Donald Sterling talking about a previous mistress and it's just, whoa, right? Like it's just, it, it, I mean, it kind of makes your spine crawl, right? Just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you, when you listen to it and you start to understand the character, but then you look at it in as a parallel case to the V. Stiviano case where Shelly ends up doing the same thing, suing the mistress, kind of saving Donald's ass, okay, um, by cleaning up the mess that he had wrought with his mistress. Um, it's almost the same playbook. Like when you read Shelley's lawsuit against Castro, it's very similar to the lawsuit against Bistiviano. And this is not, these are not two isolated incidents. There are many of them. Um, we talked to some of the, some of the other women in, who have lawsuits or who had lit- litigation that had been settled. Most of them couldn't talk to us because they had signed non-disclosures, right? Um, but you know they're out there. You kind of know the name and then you know the case was settled, but, but you can't get any details on it but it's a really similar playbook yeah, and <laughs> the biggest difference is that in 2014 like a, 2014 v stiviano had a cell phone and she could record him and none of the other mistresses could get the the receipts as the as the, the millennials call it right she didn't have receipts and i think the social media side of this the technology as like you know the cell phone justice that's the side that that rang so true to me this time was like wow this is why this happened in 2014 the world had changed in so many ways but it was just a mistress with a cell phone <laughs> yeah and that court case in 2000 from Ooh. 2002 and you mm-hmm. <laughs> the donald is essentially asked in the sterling is asked about his relationship with this woman and he tells them that she, that he had paid paid her for sex and and he goes on to say it was it was good and it was delicious it was the best of the best and I did it and in the court case right and the best part he goes on and on right and yeah the punchline is from the lawyer Donald's going on and on about being with this woman and the lawyer says back to him when Donald finally finishes this breathless description of her he says what? Sir, the question is, is this your handwriting? Yes. You could make this up. It's amazing. And, and, okay, so here's another part of this, though. Alexandra Castro was present for this deposition. And I'm just, you know, some of this is John, Donald showboating, right? This is a man just, you know, talking about what a stud he is and how great the sex was, okay? But he was also doing it in front of this woman to completely humiliate mm-hmm. and embarrass her. And I, you know, her having to listen to him talk about her like that in person must have just been awful. It, and, and that's a theme throughout this is, you know, you see who his role models were in the world and it, it certainly makes sense who he mm-hmm. who he tried to emulate in his life. Um, I, I remember there, there's one Clippers coach 
remember hearing a story from an assistant coach from L.A. at one point who who Sterling comes into a game, and they're on the bench. It might have been a preseason. It was an early season game. It was early in one particular coach's tenure. And as you know, Sterling wouldn't just walk into he. I remember I can still see him coming from the freight elevator, and it wouldn't be one woman. It wouldn't be two. He'd come in with three or four. You saw you were courtside more nights than I was there. Oh, yeah. But he'd come in with several women, and they would sit right in the front row. And one coach during a timeout or coming out of a timeout, sort of when coaches are sort of just chatting there before play starts, the coach leans over to his assistants and said, hey, guys, if he's willing to do that to his wife, imagine what he's willing to do to us. Meaning if he's willing to humiliate her this way in public, imagine what he's going to do to us. And um, that's who he was, and it was it was very public. Yeah, I mean, it was, and I think that's what some of the players said, too, when I asked them about, you know, did you see V. Stiviano at games? I mean, I didn't know that because we almost, like, just kind of knew Donald had mistresses, so you just kind of, like, tried to, like, avert your eyes, right? It was, like, this 80-year-old man with, like, much younger kind of... I don't want to describe what them <laughs> the mistresses were like, right? But but there was always different ones, right? And and so like you just kind of just tried to ignore it because it was weird and icky. Um, and the players did too. And I think they felt sorry for Shelly Sterling. I think they felt like God, I felt so bad for his wife. She just has to see this. Um, and I think what makes this story so compelling is that V wasn't just a typical mistress. Like she wanted more. And she really was nasty. Like, you know, I got part of the reason why Shelly and I talked so much over the years is because I understood um, why this, why she sued her and why it was so important for her to win that case. Because like V would follow her into the bathroom. She would stalk her. She was like telling everyone she wanted to be Mrs. Sterling one day. Like this isn't just a mistress who is with an older man, wants the money and the status and the privilege. This was like, she was literally trying to dislodge Shelly Sterling from Donald's life and from her position. And she was rubbing in her face and it was mean. Um, and Shelly just, you know, they, she gets into this fight with V. It wasn't like a physical altercation or anything, but it was an argument outside of Neiman Marcus. And that's when Shelly decides enough. I'm suing her. And that lawsuit ends up, you know, being the whole Pandora's box because when Shelly sues V trying to get a return of the community property, which she believed it's not Donald's to give away. They built this empire together. Um, v then has these tapes and the tapes become blackmail. And they actually called the Clippers 10 days in advance and V was threatening and, you know, really just trying to get Shelly to drop the lawsuit. And the Clippers, I think, you know, um, the, you know, Marissa, who's in a secretary over there, Andy Roser was aware of the tapes. Um, there was, uh, I think some other people were aware, like Doc Rivers was aware, but he didn't know really what was on it. He just knew it was bad. And he has this funny line. He goes, you know, it was Donald. I assumed it was a sex tape, right? <laughs> um, I think they all, everybody had just gotten so, used to the Sterlings just cleaning up their own messes eventually and handling their own business and just like really just trying to avoid the whole thing um, that maybe nobody saw how bad this was going to be until it was way too late. The Sterling Affairs, it is a five-part podcast series from Ramona Shelburne and The Undefeated. You can download it uh, off the ESPN app, the 30 for 30 podcast. You can get it wherever else you listen to your shows. You, you mentioned Shelly 
Sterling Ramona, and she talked at length. You you hear her voice in, I think, probably all five episodes. She's yeah. certainly one of the most prominent voices in this. Uh, there were plenty of people who didn't talk to you, and you and I talked about this during mm-hmm. the process when you're when you were um, reporting it. And and I think, and I've had people who knew who I talked to about you doing it, and they'd said, "Listen, I, I'd love to have been a part of it." I, I like who may who I know helped you off of uh, talked to you on background and people you have relationships with in the league who just I think don't want their name anywhere near Donald Sterling and probably it just didn't go on with you. But Shelly Sterling did. And what do you think of her? You've known her a long time. She mm-hmm. stood by and was part of and complicit with some horrible things from the housing discrimination to any number of things that they built their fortune on. He was a slumlord. Mm-hmm. And yet there's still a sense of, I think, some empathy in there for her. Um, that I think some people do have. What do you come away, your years of knowing so, her and then the research and the time you spend with her for this? What do you think of her? I think she's a lot smarter than anybody realizes. Um, she comes across initially as this like very cute grandmotherly um, figure and you kind of felt sorry for her that Donald treated her this way and was in everybody's face about stuff. Um, but she is really smart and really knew what she was doing all along. And I think, um, you know, getting to know her pretty, pretty close over the last five years. I mean, we've gone to lunch many times and we, we talk a lot, obviously in the podcast and understanding kind of what she went through and all of it. Um, you know, I think that Shelly didn't get enough credit for building their real estate empire, for being the wife who, you know, not just, I don't want to say, you know, we, we all looked at her as like, oh, that poor wife who stood by this icky guy. Uh, I think she was a business partner and they have a marriage, but most of them just have history. Okay. Um, and you know, there, there's a friend of hers who's in this, who's in this story. And she's, you know, her name is Marlene Selzman. She, she, she knew them way back when before they were ever rich or famous or anything. And, and she always says, you know, about Shelly, she goes, you know, she, she always comes in for the save, right? <laughs> she, like she, she's, she, a lot of times we do that with women because they're not the forward facing guy, person, right? They're not the forward facing um, part of the company or the owner or whatever it is. And I've actually kind of gotten to know this whole set of women in Los Angeles through reporting this and doing this story. You know, some of Shelley's friends are like Larry King's wife, Aaron Spelling's wife, Wolfgang Puck's former wife, right? Like these are, it's like they're known by their husband because their husband is the forward facing celebrity. But in many cases, the woman is just as not, if not more important than the forward facing guy and her husband. And these women are pretty kick ass, right? They're pretty, pretty savvy in business. Um, I wanted to believe Shelly was that person the whole time I was reporting this. And I had a hard time towards the end when, you know, you see them get back together and they're, they're still, she's still kind of like, she's gone back to talking like she used to talk about Donald, like sort of rationalizing his behavior. And, you know, there was a, there was a really clean break in 2014 and then they've just sort of like fallen back together. And I, it's hard for me to like understand it. 
and she and I have talked a lot about this on and off the record. Um, it's in the podcast. She's incredibly open. She's incredibly candid. And I think you have to take her at her word, which is that she flat out says, I'm pretty good at making myself happy. I've learned over the years how to make myself happy. And I take her to mean, I just know who it is that I married. I know what I signed up for. I know the compromises I've made. And she's okay with it. She can still be happy even with all of those compromises and even with all those insults. I mean, it's pretty hard to come back from your husband calling you a pig in open court and from you getting him declared mentally incapacitated. And yet there's this part at the end where I, you know, a lot of people have raised this issue. A lot of people who are close to the Sterlings have said, well, maybe, maybe that was all part of it. Maybe like that whole song and dance where they, you know, they play this side and they're, they're, they're with each other, then they're against each other. Then they, you know, in, in some ways it actually got the best deal for the team, right? I mean, they sold mm-hmm. for two billion right after the Bucks sold for, you know, a, a third of that or a fourth of that, right? Yep. So she did pretty well. <laughs> and, if she didn't have the leverage of Donald might just scuttle this whole deal and we have to sell the team in 12 days, do they get $2 billion? I don't know. There's a, a scene <laughs> near the end that really it's pretty remarkable. There's all these tapes. I mean, there's mm-hmm. all these audio tapes of Donald and, and V that uh, existed that Shelley has. And you talk about her driving – from Malibu down to Beverly Hills. It's a drive she makes often uh, to go into town, as, as you say she calls it, they call it. And her popping in, still now, listening to these tapes between Donald Sterling, oh. who she's still married to, and his mistress in this incre- you know this publicly humiliating thing that she went through that everyone sort of got dragged into with, with him. And that she listens to the tape sometimes. I that that was a hard one to that was a hard one to process. I really was. I mean, I you know, but you have to remember, she starts listening to these tapes because she has a lawsuit against V. Stiviano, and in order to win this lawsuit, she has to prove that V. and Donald conspired to hide the property and gifts from her. Right. So she has to find them talking about hiding that house that Donald bought her or hiding the car that Donald bought her. And there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of tapes. And Shelly, and in addition to her lawyers, but Shelly is the one who goes and listens to these tapes. And I remember her and her friend told me, her friend Catherine Bauman, who, you know, is, is, is very close to this and is, as, you know, was, a, was as good of a source and resource for me and trying to understand this whole thing as anybody. Um, she said, I remember when Shelly found the tape where they admit, where they're like conspiring to hide the tape. I'm sorry, but they're conspiring to hide the house. And Shelly knew she got her. It was like, she found the smoking gun. She knew she was going to win the lawsuit now. And Shelly's lawyer, Pierce O'Donnell, who is this just really fun character in the story, um, you know, delighted in telling how they set V up to kind of act like she, you know, she didn't, she didn't do any of this. And then they, you know, kind of dimmed the lights and they, they played those tapes in open court, um, just totally caught her red handed, right? Like the, it's just, they just won the, they won the case right then. Um, and it was a very kind of theatrical moment where we gotcha, you know, and everyone in court heard it and it was like, 
Shelly takes as much delight in winning that case against Diviano as anything she did for the Clippers. I mean, she she really feels like she was standing up for women who had been who whose husbands have done similar things to them. Um, and you know, it doesn't take a psychologist to to look at the situation and say. Yes, you can be angry at the other woman, but where is the anger at your husband for doing this in the first place? Um, I think she's still working through that. I think that's why she listens to the tapes. I think she understands it. But, you know, you've made these compromises a long time ago, and she has a pretty good explanation for herself, even if, you know, we all may not like it, right? It's, it's, you know, and I and I I said this to Julia, my producer, so many times. Like my mom always said, you, you never know what's inside another person's marriage. I, I I got pretty close in there, and I I still don't understand. I mean, it's amazing, right? <laughs> it's you know, but it's but that's why it's a good story. It, it's it's a remarkable story. It is a remarkable series of podcasts, the Sterling Affairs. It's available on the ESPN app wherever you listen to your podcast. Ramona, this was. Incredible work. I, I know I have a sense, a small sense anyway, um, of having worked with you over the last year and a half, two years of how much you put into this Ooh. and how much of your life this consumed. And uh, it is uh, just remarkable. Like I said, I listened to all five episodes here in the last few days. And like I said, if you had five more, like I'd, I'd punch him right in. So, congrats <laughs> on this. And, and we just uh, didn't have enough time. <laughs> like honestly, I I was like, we just gotta get, we just gotta do this. You know, I mean, <laughs> let's just make it five because <laughs> we could do eight or ten. You know. No, it's it's tremendous, Ramona. Thanks thanks for jumping in with me here today. We'll we'll I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, Woj. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today. ESPN's Ramona Shelburne. Remember, you can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod on the ESPN app or wherever else you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next time.